for tonight, we're going to talk about a part of the Bible that actually is going to give you a good idea of what RUF is all about and who we are. And this is stuff for the first-timers like me, but also people who've been here four and a half years. Uh, this is stuff we need to be continually reminded of. Uh, but this is, a lot of you are here maybe checking out ministries. You're new to NMSU. You're wondering, where am I going to plug in? Where are my friends going to come from? Where's my community going to be from? And so we want to help you with that decision. We don't want to play coy with you. Uh, we would rather open the hood and, and be upfront about who we are, what we're about, what we're like, uh, what we long to be um, up front and, um, and help you out in any way we can uh, in your first few weeks or months on campus. And so tonight we're going to talk about a letter from Paul to his little protege, Timothy, from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and a little bit of 4. So please stand up as I read uh, God's word for us. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 4, verse 5. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season. Be ready out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people won't endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And they will wander off into myths. But as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we are ultimately here uh, because of you, either because we know who you are uh, and we rejoice in that and cling to you with white knuckles, or because we're curious about who you are uh, or questioning who you are. Uh, we praise you. It is our hope and our joy tonight that you are not dead, and your word is not dead. It is not lifeless, but you are actually alive, and you have the stuff of our lives underneath your fingernails. You know us. You know these people. You know what our summers were like. You know what the first week has been like. Uh, You know the fears we have. You know the disappointments, the shame, the joy. So tonight, will you take your word And bring it to each of these friends and put it, bolt it into those particular places. Uh, Give us eyes to see you as beautiful, ears to hear you as believable. And do this uh, for your sake because you enjoy uh, bringing life to us. So we ask this all in your name. Amen. All right. So about 10 years ago, I was in a lot of your position I uh, had just graduated undergrad at University of Georgia and got the opportunity of a lifetime. I got to go to Western Australia for a month and a half to hike through the Australian outback. 
Uh, and we got, so what that basically means is we're about 100 miles deep into the Australian outback. If you've ever been to Australia or heard about the outback, it's places I'm pretty sure other people have never seen. Like we never saw roads, never saw cars, never saw people, never saw any evidence of people uh, being there. And so we were out in the middle of nowhere, and we didn't have anything with us except for 15 classmates. It was kind of an outdoor education trip that we did. The backpacks on our back and whatever was in there, uh, and a map and a compass. And that was it for a month and a half. And we had a little X on the map, which is our pickup point, where in a month and a half we needed to be there. And it was a long way from where we were. And that's all we had. And so if you're in that situation, by about two and a half weeks in, you're pretty good with a map and a compass, right? Because it's your only way to get to things like, oh, water, (laughs) or uh, the pickup point, or to know you're still moving in the same direction. And so two weeks of that, day by day by day, looking on the map at where we need to go and shooting uh, compass azimuths to get there, triangulating, you get really good with a map and a compass. Here's the problem, though. About two weeks into the trip, we began to realize uh, where the compass says east is is not where the sun's rising, and where the compass says west is isn't where the sun is setting. Disconcerting. (laughs) This is before the age of GPS. It's like cutting-edge technology back then, so... And we don't have one with us anyway. But um, So we're like, what do we do? And it, it turns out our instructors tell us the reason our compass needles were not reading true north anymore, which means they're basically useless at that point, is because we just so happened to be hiking on the continent's largest iron ore deposit. Uh, and a month and a half later, as we were driving back out of this place, you saw like just miles-long trains that were taking all of the old iron ore to, to the uh, foundry to be um, forged down, melted down. And so what do you think it does to your magnetic compass when you're literally walking on, I don't know how many feet, thousands of feet deep of iron ore? It messes with it. And the problem was we didn't know how much it was messing with our compass needles. If we knew, oh, it's just five degrees, you could account for that and your compass still works. We had no idea because one degree when you're going 100 miles puts you in a different state. And so this was a really big problem for us. And the big question was this. Were we aware that our compasses were off or not? What happens if we never... What if we woke up at 9 a.m. every morning, the sun was already pretty high in the sky, and we never got the clue that our compass bearings were off? What is the next month and a half going to be like for us as we're trying to locate stuff on the map and try to move in that direction? We're never going to get where we think we're going, but we're never going to know we're lost. So we're going to be the most confident lost people in the history of backpacking. And we're going we're gonna to interpret everything through the grid that I know where I'm going. I know where I am on the map, but the topography's not lining up. And everything's going to have to be twisted and turned to fit the data that our compasses work. Look at this. A compass doesn't lie. It's always north. But what if, what if we had those instructors there that said, you're walking on top of the biggest iron ore deposit in Australia, and you have a magnetic compass. It's going to be off. What if we got that information? What are our options then? The good news for us is these two instructors with us uh, probably led 10 of these trips every year through the same land. And so they knew where we were. They knew where we were going. They knew the high points where we could get up there during this time when we're on top of the iron ore, where we could kind of get our bearings and know where we needed to go. But the key was you have to know your compass is off or else you're in big trouble and you'll never know you're in big trouble. And so 
if you look back down at your passage, when, when Paul says to Timothy, who's kind of taken over um, Paul's old church, kind of like if Sid wrote me a letter and said, hey, this is what NMSU students are like. Prepare. Um, what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 3, is he's saying, hey, Timothy, there will come a day when people in your church, they won't put up with sound teaching anymore. People in your church. This isn't like those bad people out there. This is for people inside the church. They won't endure sound teaching. They'll wander off into myths. We just sang a song about this. So he's saying, hey, Timothy, your heart, it's off. Your people's hearts, it's off. It's like the, mag- it's like the compass needle. It gives you the illusion it's always on, always reliable, always trustworthy, will always lead you where it tells you it's leading you, but it's off, Timothy. And the people in your church, the, com- the, com- the compass is off. Their hearts are off. Their desires are off. They don't lead you where they promise to lead you. And they can't deliver where they promise to lead you. They don't point to true north anymore. So that's kind of what Paul is telling Timothy about the wandering off into myths. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But our hearts and our desires, what Paul is saying, is instead of leading you to God like a moth leaps towards the moon. God made a moth to race towards the light. God made your heart to race towards him, to find life in him, sustenance in him, joy in him, um, great happiness in him, great peace in him. But what happens when you get that interference? For us, it was the iron ore deposit. For us as human beings, it's sin. I'm not going to get too much into it tonight because we're going to talk a lot about it as we go through the, the whole Bible soon. But this interference gets in there and it messes with something that all of us are very allegiant and obedient to. Our feelings, our desires, what we love. We're always following what we love. It's instinctive. We don't think about it. And so our heart doesn't point to God anymore. It's like, and there's this like force field. You know when you take two magnets of the same charge and you try to put them together? It's invisible. You can't see anything, but they don't stick together anymore. There's an opposing force. And Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, there's an opposing force between you and your God now. Uh, Apart from Jesus working in your heart, there's an opposing force between you and your God. And your people, there's an opposing force between uh, between them and their God. And you have to be aware of that. You have to know the heart is off. That's the first step uh, to waking up to reality. And so, uh, yeah, instead of drawing us to God, these, our hearts, our desires now draw us towards sin and selfishness. And so Paul's saying, just like the song we sang, you and me, I'm a person who's prone to wander. And it's right up here in front in the Bible. Paul didn't hide it. It's not something taboo that he can't talk about. He says right up front, look, we're people who are prone to wander away from God. We're people who are prone to leave the God we love. or people who are prone to leave the God we hate. If you don't know him, that's what, uh, that's what Paul is saying. And so let's take this a step further because Paul doesn't just say our hearts lead us into, uh, hearts lead us into wandering, like wandering away from God, but he actually says where it leads us. And he says our hearts lead us into myths. Now, some of you guys are English or literature majors, and you probably have a more sophisticated definition than I do of what a myth is, but I don't know. I was thinking about what I'd call a myth. Maybe you could call a myth something that doesn't square up with reality. And so that, that, that erroneous compass needle bearing would have been a myth. It said, if you go this way, you will find X, Y, or Z, and it never delivered. That stuff never got found. And so we, we could say a myth is something that doesn't square with reality. Or how about this? It's a self-fabricated reality. You ever met people who have those and you're like, what's going on with this guy? I'm going to slowly back away and be really polite. 
But we do it too. We have these stories that we so want to be true that we begin to make it happen. We, we kind of take the reins from God and we start re-engineering our lives to make this preferable story happen. And we, br- we draw other people into that story and they're kind of supporting characters in it. But if you asked Paul, if you're in a Bible study with Paul and he's saying, I wrote this, uh, the Spirit uh, worked through me to write this passage we're talking about tonight. And he said, Paul, what would you say a myth is? I think he'd say something like this. He'd say, a myth is a story that whispers to your heart of hearts, you will be okay. A myth is a story that whispers to your heart of hearts, you will be okay. If. Do this, do that. Walk this direction, walk that direction, and you'll be okay. It'll all be okay. That's what a myth is. Let me bring this down to earth. I got a call today. Don't ever call a preacher on the day he's preaching. You will become an illustration. <laughs> this person doesn't live in the state, so it's okay. And I ran this by him. But I got a call today from a friend, and he is just moved to a new town. And so he's in that kind of painful phase where you're surrounded by people. You're always meeting people, but you don't know them really well. And you're kind of sizing up, who are my close friends going to be? Or who can I be a close friend to? And, uh, and he's in that stage, and he's been, it's been there a few months, and so it's beginning to get hard. Because he's beginning to find friends that, he said, this is, you know when you meet your, one of your best friends, you're like, that's best friend material. We're, we're so alike. Or if it's of the opposite sex, you say, that's girlfriend or boyfriend material. I like this. But that's the way you think, and he's kind of in that position. But he's, as he moves towards these people, they move away. And he said to me this. He said, Ben, I just want a relationship where the other person is into it as much as I am. I just want a relationship where the other person is into it as much as I am. Now, no matter what context you put that in, with a roommate, with a friend, with someone you really respect and want to get to know, with a parent you feel distant from, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone you want to be that, that's something probably everyone in the room can, can attach to. I want a relationship where the other person is, is in it as much as I am. There's a reciprocation between the desire and the love. And so the reason he was calling me is because he was so discouraged. And he said, uh, he said if I just find that relationship where the other person's in it as much as I am, I'll be okay. If I just find that relationship, I'll be okay. This is why you don't call preachers on the day they're preaching. <laughs> they hear everything you're saying through their sermon, too. So we, we were talking to them like, dude, that's me, too. That's the story of my life. Um, Anna and I will, will put our marriage on display for you more and more, too. But um, I've, in my year and a half of marriage, I've heard Anna in the times when I hold her to a little script. And I say, if we just do this, if you just do this, we'll be okay. I'll be okay. And for my friend, too. So this is not telling a story about him. It's telling a story about he and I. But he said, um, this, this, this friend is backing away. Kind of every step I take towards him, he's backing away. And I'm not getting what I want. Um, and I'm not getting the relationship I thought I was going to get. And also because I just read this passage, very gently, very tenderly, we begin to talk. And we say, who's the main character in the story you just told me? I'm not, uh, this, this person is not giving me what I want if I get 
that kind of relationship. I will be happy. I will be okay. Who's the main character in that story? Me, I, self, right? In myths, me is always very big. Me is the biggest character. Me is the main character. And everybody else, including God, just comes in as a supporting character to make the story happen, to keep the story going. And so me is at the center of every myth. And we shouldn't be surprised. If you have a Bible or a phone, you can flip back to chapter 3. When Paul says this in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, In the last days, in the Bible's way of keeping time, the last days means everything from Jesus raising up from the dead to when Jesus comes back. This is kind of the climax of history we've been in for 2,000 years. So Paul, this is now. Okay, This isn't like some weird time in the future. This is now. He says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Listen to how he bookends this. For people will become lovers of self. A few things in there, a few specific examples of how. And then he says at the end, the back bookend, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So he says, uh, Timothy, in those last days, today and now, people will become lovers of self and lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. Self becomes very big. Me becomes the biggest character in my story and in my life. Not God, not other people. And he says in chapter 4, verse 3, Timothy, listen to me. There's coming a time when people won't put up with sound doctrine. But what? We will turn aside to, to myths that scratch our itching ears. They kind of scratch where we're itching. They get at what we want to suit our own selfish desires. We'll turn away. That's what causes us to turn away from the truth and to wander off into the myth. Quick aside, Paul talks about two kinds of myths. Here's some connection points for you. Uh, all of us will find all of this in our hearts. <laughs> so you can rest easy. I'm implicating all of us here. There's religious myths Paul talks about. First Timothy chapter 1, he kind of gives us a clue about this. And he says, okay, you're new Christians. The church has only been around about 20 or 30 years. Already, already, 30 years into this, we're 2,000 years into it now. 30 years in, there's people saying, yeah, Jesus is great, but... If you have a family line that goes back to the royalty, you're gold. You'll be okay. Family was really big and is still really big in the Middle East. And so that's like cream of the crop for them. If you have the family line, you're gold. So Paul says, arguing about endless genealogies in chapter 1. And then legalism. People are saying, Jesus is great, but you've got to do this too. Follow these old laws perfectly. Uh, work your way to God and you'll be okay. But what about today? We're not tracking our family trees very much, and uh, we're at least a, a little bit more aware of what legalism looks or sounds like. Consumerism is a big thing, and I was realizing, I guess just on the way up here, how much the university and all of us play into it, too. There's all of these big rush things and table things, and maybe some of you are here because of that. Um, but here's a myth. Here's a myth that says, if I go to every ministry, <laughs> if I go to every Bible study, if I go to like this one on Monday, or if on Tuesday, this one on Wednesday, this one on Thursday, and the service project on Friday, I will be okay. I will be much more mature. I'll have more intimacy. I'll be closer to God. Isn't that a very appealing, seductive-sounding myth? Here's the question. Does that compass bearing get you where it says it will? If you know, if you're one of those folks, I used to be one of those folks, if you know folks like that, you probably know the compass bearing never gets them where, they, where it says it will. Because people who float around like that never get to know people. You never get to be real. And it's kind of like spiritual hoarders. God becomes a commodity, a product that does something for us, and we go hoard him wherever we can get him. But the people there are just aside. They're supporting characters. 
to that myth. And it doesn't get you what it promises. There's a lawless myth, too. This is a seductive one for us. It says, it goes something like this. I love sinning, and Jesus loves forgiving sinners. So we're golden. What a great compatibility. Or you say, my girlfriend and I, or my boyfriend and I, or my roommate and I, whatever. Like We, we enjoy sinning, whatever form it is. And Jesus enjoys forgiving. And so that's a really good match. Um, and there's grace for that. It's okay. We can slide back into that. And does that compass bearing get you what it says it'll get you? It says it'll get you life. It says it'll, it says it'll bring you to a place of grace. If that's true, why do our hearts become marble? Why do we become cold? Why do we become numb and unable to feel, unable to hear from God, unable to have any sense of relationship with him or other people? It doesn't get you what it promises. It doesn't get you what it promises. There's also irreligious myths. These are a little more obvious. They're a little more billboard kinds of stuff. But it says if you're the right weight, then you'll be okay. If you have the right body shape, then you'll be okay. Or it says you only live once. YOLO. (laughs) So live it up. College is four years. You can put God on the side. He'll always be there when you get back. Does does uh, Does the myth deliver? It doesn't deliver because the myth kind of is financed by this idea that you're in control of your sin. Sin is in control of you. It's, you're not in the driver's seat. It's in the driver's seat. We're in the trunk. Um, unless the Spirit has made you alive, <laughs> then sin is the very annoying backseat driver that's always messing you up. But there's another one that says all paths lead to God. It's a myth. It's a compass bearing. It says walk this way and you will find this. Does it deliver? There's a myth about science. You have enough technology, enough medical development, and you'll be okay. Tell that to the people who've been in ICU for months and months and won't leave ICU. Do the myths deliver what they promise? Here's the the crux. Here's the rub. Can, Can the person making the promise afford to make good on the promise? There's been a lot of times where people have told me, um, I've been really worried about a test or something. They say, dude, it's okay. You'll be fine. This is this class. You'll be fine. It's a, it's a statistics class, whatever. Just study a little bit. You'll be okay. They said, you'll be okay. They promised me I would be okay. I took the test and I wasn't okay. <laughs> what happened? They can't afford to tell me I'm going to be okay. It's another student. Who can, who can afford to tell me, Ben, it'll be okay? Only the professor. And only if he's very, very gracious, if it's a math <laughs> class. Are you, or, or, or a medical test or, or something else or a, I don't know what it is, but who can afford to tell you you'll be okay and make it come true for you without it being wishful, empty, hollow, inspirational thinking? Who can afford to say those words? <clears throat> Let me share this quote with you. It went out on the email today if you got that, but Flannery O'Connor gives us a really great sense that puts words to probably how a lot of us feel. People who do life inside all of these myths, we get really disoriented. And she says this, um, if, if Frederick Beekner was Sid's number one person in the world, Flannery O'Connor will be mine and Beekner will be number two. I love him too. But Flannery O'Connor, she's a Catholic in the South in the 30s, and she says this, at, be- at its best, ours is an age of searchers and wanderers. And at its worst, get this, an age that has domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily. At its worst, ours is an age that has domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily. Cynics. People have just stopped hoping. We've put a glass ceiling right here. That's what she says 
uh, at its worst our culture is and our age is. So let me ask you the question, how do you know what myths you wander into the most? What whispers to you, you will be okay. It'll all be okay. If. What is that for you? How do you know? Here's some diagnostics and then we'll move on. Point two and three are the same thing. So this isn't like an 80-minute sermon. Um, here's how you know. Here's some kind of some tools uh, to, to kind of locate where are the myths that I'm blindly wandering Where have I been trusting that heart needle? Where has it been leading me astray? Where are your deepest disappointments? Because deepest disappointments are usually your deepest hopes that have been thwarted. Or some of the most seductive, deep hopes and dreams that are not being met. And so a lot of times those could be the myths that they sound so good. And we get so disappointed because like that compass will lead you in the middle of nowhere and you look around you and you don't recognize the landscape. You're like, where am I? Uh, Same with the disappointments. Where have you domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily? Where have you numbed pain? It's a good question to ask. Where are you most defensive? Ooh. Where do you get the most defensive? Whether you're a confrontational person and that starts a fight or whether you're a meek person, meek, and, uh, and you kind of just keep it all inside. Where do you get the most offensive? Where does your hair stand up? Where, do you, where does your back get wrangled when people challenge you? Because Paul says, not only will we wander into myths, what else will we do? We'll surround ourselves with teachers to suit our own passions, people who tell us what we want to hear, people who don't agree. Yes, men. And so where we feel challenged the most, where we get defensive the most probably tells us a place we don't like to be challenged. Maybe that's a place where we've surrounded ourselves with people who think like us, um, who are like us, and maybe in some, some rough ways. Maybe last is this. Where are your most persistent relationship problems? Those of you who are in a dating relationship, those of you who have been, those of you who have a roommate, everyone in the room, those of you who like other human beings, you have relationship problems. <laughs> The whole Bible's about relationship problems with God and other people. And so, where are your most persistent ones? Where's the patterns of places you keep hitting the wall with people or roommates or whatever else? Um, Probably running into a myth there that God has graciously brought someone into your life to wake you up. Uh, But where you hit the wall with that person the most frequently is probably a place where there might be some mythical stuff going on. Um, Because, what I said earlier, who factors huge in our little stories? Me. And other people get steamrolled. When they, when they play their role that I want them to play, I bless them. When they don't, I push them away. I ignore them. I curse them. I don't know what I do, but bad things happen. And so where you keep running into relationship problems is probably a place where there might be some myths happening and where God is gently, he says, gently and patiently teaching and training. Could that be a place God is gently and patiently teaching and training and pulling and pricking you? We get it. We're prone to wander into myths. All right, that horse is dead many times over. But that's actually not the point of the passage. Oops, spent too much time on that. But Paul spends a lot of time on it. Here's why. Because it leads right into our next passage. Because the Bible never comes to a blank slate. There's there's other things. For instance, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, a lot of other religious books, the idea is that the book dropped out of the sky and a prophet was kind of taken up in an ecstatic experience and just dictated. Not the Bible. The Bible is kind of like the director's cut on a DVD. As history unfolds, 
the director, the author, the one who sees all, the one who sees the beginning and the end is whispering on the side, this is what happens. This is what that means. This is what I'm going to do next. This is who it's all pointing to. This is what it's all about. And it happens in little chunks throughout history and it all fits together. That's what the Bible is. And it's the story that records uh, God moving towards his people. And so these, so the Bible doesn't come to a blank slate. The Bible comes to people who are wanderers. And so if the Bible's going to engage you where you are, guess what? There might be hard conversations the Bible has with you and me. Because it has to go to where you are. It has to wrestle with you there. It has to woo you back to a God who traveled a long way to get to where you are to bring you back. So points two and three, like I said earlier, they're the same thing. I should have put them together, but it's this. If we are people prone to wander, then the Bible says God is a prone God is a God who's prone to chase wanderers. If we are people who are prone to wander, the gospel is this, the good news is this. God is a God who's prone to chase down wanderers and bring them back. You remember the parable Jesus said about leaving the 99 to find the one? Proportions aren't terribly important to this God. He will leave the flock to find the one. Do you see how that's happening in this passage? Um, you may not see it if you just look at this. If you read the whole book, you might see it. But here's what's happening tonight right now with you in the room. You're not here by accident. Here's how it happened. The Holy Spirit of Jesus, you know how it says all, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful? It comes from the mouth of God. This origin is God. Its authority is God's. Its power is God's. And so it says, the Spirit of God tells Paul, Paul. Be careful. Your heart is a magnet drawn to all the wrong things. It doesn't lead you where it says it's leading you. So listen to the story, Paul. Listen to the Bible. Listen to the gospel, which is the story of God chasing his people. The story of God chasing wanderers. He says, listen, Paul. And Paul, tell Timothy too. And so Paul says, Timothy, listen. Your heart's a magnet drawn to all the wrong things. Be careful. Be on the lookout. Listen to the story. Listen to the chase. Watch God chase his people throughout history all the way up into the present moment. Timothy says, okay. And say, Paul says, Timothy, tell your church too. So Timothy goes and tells his church. Guess what happens when those people find out? People, tell your friends. Remind them of the story of God chasing his people through history to tackle them with grace and drag them back to life. Tell the people. Tell them their hearts are drawn to bad things. Tell them that the needle doesn't lead where it says it's leading. So you see how that literally tonight, that trickles all the way from God's mouth all the way to your ear tonight because the story didn't stop there. It's been surging through history ever since and it butts right up against tonight. And so that's, that's what's happening and, and God is using the Bible. He's using this passage tonight to do all the things he says he's going to do in here to rebuke, to correct, to push, to pull, to instruct, to train, to equip. You want to know how God gets his fingers dirty in the mess of your life? It's through his word, through his church, through his spirit. That's how it happens. Here's an even bigger point as we begin to land this plane of a sermon. He says, Timothy, preach the word. Little, a little lesson here. When Paul says preach the word, he's not saying in an in a impersonal sense, Timothy, give him the Bible, tell him to read the Bible, tell him to have a quiet time. It's not what he's saying. For Paul, when he says the word, he's not talking about the whole Bible. He's talking about the, the pinnacle of the Bible, the gospel. The, the point everything in the Bible points to. The story of God chasing his people through Jesus. 
When Paul says, preach the word in season and out, when people want to hear it, when people don't want to hear it, that's what he's saying. Tell them the story of Jesus chasing down wanderers. Not shouting from the mountaintop, hey, wanderers, get your butt up here. Where have you been? But a God who gets off and comes down and goes to you because you can't move towards him. I can't move towards him. And so he comes and gets us. And so, what's the word? What's the word Paul tells about? What's the gospel? Well, we could say this. The gospel is that Jesus gives you the ending of his story. And Jesus takes the end of your story. Where does your story lead? People who have been, I don't know, wandering in the middle of nowhere forever, not certain which way we're going, accruing a long rap sheet of things we're ashamed of, of things we're responsible for. Jesus takes the end of that story, the tragic end of that story, and he freely offers you the end of his story, the reward for a life we have lived well, the reward for a beautiful life. I promised you earlier I would tell you this passage sheds some light on RUF, which we'll do very quickly here. Let me tell you a quick story that will help us do that. Have you heard the tale of Odysseus? I think it's Homer's Odyssey. Is that right? My English literature wife, major... Uh, of a wife told me that earlier. Um, so Odysseus, here's the deal. Uh, the story is about sailors who have to pass this very treacherous uh, ford or canyon. And every sailor and every ship has always crashed on the rocks at the same place. Because there's these little ladies called sirens who sit on the rocks and they sing the most beautiful songs ever. If you ever saw the movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou? It's those ladies. But they sit there and they woo people in with beautiful music. And every ship starts steering towards the music or the sailor jumps off and swims towards the music. And they all die. Except one man by the name of Odysseus who was warned the way we've been warned, the way we've been clued in. And Odysseus to prepare, did a couple of things, different versions of the story, but in a, the, three things principally. He told his men, everybody get wax and put it in your ears because if you hear that song, you're overboard and you're swimming towards it. You are that weak and that vulnerable and it is that tempting. Plug your ears. Second, he said, tie me to the mast because I know my heart. I know my ears. If I hear that song, I'm going overboard, or I will command you to turn the ship over there. So tie me to the mast, and every time I lurch or try to get off of that, tie the knots tighter. Every time I say untie me, put another rope around me. Third, he found the best harpist on the ship, and he put him right next to him on the mast. And he said, play the most beautiful song you've ever heard, and play it louder than you've ever played before. And Odysseus got past the sirens. He heard the sirens. He lurched. He said, take me out of these ropes. Let me jump overboard. Turn the ship around. But he prepared himself. And he knew they were there. And he couldn't get off the mast. And there was this gorgeous music that drowned out the noise of the sirens, a superior song. What is RUF about? What is Christian community really about? In light of the passage we looked at tonight... You can say a few things kind of using that illustration. We are people who are prone to temptation. You should know that about us. 
Uh, We're like you. You're like us. We are people who are really, really, really prone to wander. Really prone to leave the God we love. We are people who love the siren songs and have a history of shipwreck. We are also people who are trying and wanting, by God's grace, to tie ourselves to the mast because we know what our hearts are capable of. And so when God says, be careful, we know enough about him, his beauty, his love, his grace, that we don't want to leave him. And so we are helping each other make provisions to stay on the ship. We are getting each other's backs. When people say, let me go to that, let me do that, let me, let me wander off into this myth, we actually we have something to say about that, you know? We kind of we have a little conversation there. Our Christians should be doing that. We help each other plug our ears. You get to know your friends well enough. You're honest enough, authentic enough with people. Your community is rich enough. You begin to know what stories they're most attracted to. And you begin to pray for them. And you begin to help them. And you begin to get their back. And you find ways to tie them to the mast. And you find ways, most of all, to sing the better song of the gospel to them. You find out what do they want in this myth? What is so attractive? What's so appealing? And how is it not delivering And how does Jesus say, I will take you to beautiful places and I can deliver because I am the author. I don't have to negotiate with anyone. I am the author of the story. And so I can afford to say, you will be okay and make it happen. So we're people who need the gospel. We're people who remind each other of the gospel because we're people who forget the gospel. One more time, what's the gospel? It's the story of God literally moving heaven and earth, going to hell and back, to be able to say to you, because of Jesus, though you are not okay, in him, I'll make you okay. In him, you are okay. That's the gospel. Um, Come to Village Inn with us afterwards. Hang out. Let's talk more about it. We want to get to know you. Um, I want you to get to know me because I'm the new guy tonight too. So you can sit at my table and eat pie with me. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You are so good and so gracious. You don't stand and watch your people wander away and let them go. Your relationship with your people is not like the cold, distant marriage where each spouse sees the other walking away and wandering away and doesn't care. But you are agile. You are on your toes. You make a beeline for your people to bring them back to yourself. And so would you help us to believe? Would you help us to love you and to see how you love us? And would you make this passage, do what it says, able, profitable for us, able to grow us, able to instruct, able to rebuke, able to correct. Give us that confidence in your word, we pray in your name and for your sake.